My name is Ian McCallum and I'm the Programme Manager for the Digital ID Programme uh, here at Tech UK. I'd like to extend a very warm welcome to all of you who've downloaded this podcast, uh, both across the UK and internationally too. For any of you who are new to Tech UK, uh, we are the trade association that brings together people, companies and organisations across the UK to help realise the positive outcomes of what the digital technology can achieve. And we also aim to create a network for innovation and collaboration across business, government and other stakeholders with the laudable aim of, uh, of a better future for people, society, the economy and the planet. This is a pre-recorded session. And is the first in our uh, packed digital ID event series 2023, which will include more podcasts, webinars and events throughout the year, focusing on the very latest developments uh, across digital ID in a, an array of sectors, including finance, travel and tourism, healthcare. Uh, but we'll also focus on the regulatory, legislative and policy developments that impact the digital identity industry in the UK. If you'd like to find out uh, any more on the event series uh, of, of our program, you can access this and more from the Digital ID Program page at techuk.org, or you can contact me directly at ian.mccallum at techuk.org. Now, one of the great pleasures of being able to convene the Digital ID Working Group quarterly at Tech UK is that I get to engage with so many members who are really expert in the digital identity sector, not just in the UK, but across the world uh, as well. It's worth noting at this point that today's podcast, we will be focusing solely on the use of biometrics as a user consent driven technology enabler of digital identity. And this is not concerned with its use in the non-consensual mass surveillance uh, context. As part of my research for our upcoming biometrics paper, which is due for publication in April 2023, uh, and featuring many use cases from various varying sector verticals, uh, from some of the people on this call as well, uh, I was really fortunate enough to have um, been able to conduct interviews uh, with many of the working group members who are really at the coalface of developments in biometrics, not just in the sort of wider sense, but in actual implementations globally day in day out uh, and i'm really pleased to be uh joined by just some of those people today so enough about me and my rambling i'll get straight to our guests my first guest is identity and fraud industry leader gus tomlinson who's the chief product officer at gbg plc so if you could please tell uh, our audience a bit about yourself and and why this subject is so important to you to add a bit of colour, I've worked in the identity and fraud space for 10 years now, all the way from uh, us having phones with fingerprints to phones with faces. Um, and I've actually seen technology advance in a way that actually can enable the use of biometrics in a really positive way to make identity and fraud safer, more secure and give access to more people. So I'm really passionate about um, biometrics and the role that that plays in creating a safer online environment and um, also doing it in a way that users are aware of and comfortable with because I think that's really important if we're creating trust in a digital world which is exactly what we aim to do with our customers. Thank you Gus. My second guest is Campbell Cowie who's Head of Policy Standards and regulatory affairs that I prove, but we're so much more than our job titles, aren't we, Campbell? If you could please introduce yourself and uh, uh, again, a bit about your uh, particular interest in biometrics. Thanks, Ian. Um, yes, I'm Campbell Cowie. Um, I joined iProve in the summer of 2022 um, to establish uh, public policy and regulatory sort of capability within the business. My interest in biometrics is is really uh, a, a, an interest in in trust in the digital economy. I have a regulatory background um, and I've worked in industry and as a regulator for the best part of the last thirty years. Um, I know I don't look it, but um, that is the sad truth. And uh, most of those years, particularly those years spent in regulation, have been focused on tackling um, barriers and impediments to the take-up, use and trust of the digital economy. And so my interest in, in biometrics is really about the role that biometrics and biometrics identity can play in 
building and delivering those those the, the trust and those relationships between parties online. So so really, it's an extension of largely what I've done for the last thirty years. But I think it's a it's a finally we we, we have products and services and technologies that can deliver what the regulators have been trying manfully and womanfully to do for the last thirty years, which is build that trust in the digital economy. Thank you, Campbell. Richard, Richard Thompson, uh, who's, uh, I think, Consulting Manager for Digital Identity at Software Stereo. Have I got that right, Richard? Yes, yes, you have. Uh, please, yeah, introduce yes. yourself and it, tell us a bit about your angle on biometrics. Okay, well, I've been at Software Stereo for just over 12 months, and prior to that, I've spent about seven or eight years in the identity industry, working previously with Idemia and their, their, uh, their biometric products and services. Um, and also implement, implementing biometrics in the identity provider service that they built for the, for the gov.uk Verify program, which is what we all know know very well where that's been. So my my interest in, in biometrics is that it's the simplification of a, the user journey. Uh, at the end of the day, how do we make this make make enrolment and onboarding and service consumption that's where where an individual is trusted and, and appropriately identified for what they're trying to do. That's that's really where where my interest comes comes from from biometrics. But from Sopristeria's perspective, we look at digital transformation programs where we take a maybe a legacy onboarding system and make do a digital transformation. And biometrics is a component part in in that, that wider transformation. And it's it's being being ready and, and able to you know, provide consultancy services around bi biometrics and generally identity into our customers, whether they be public or private sector um, uh, companies. Prior to the identity, my, my time in, in the identity sector, I, I worked for about 12 years in the mobile phone industry, um, managing SIM cards and secure applications in SIM cards for uh, for the, uh, the tele telco business with Idemia. So that's really my most recent background. Thank you, Richard. And last but certainly not least, for anyone who's involved in the biometrics industry, I think in the UK, you will probably recognise our, our next guest, Martin George, who's today representing the Biometrics Institute, but is also consultant to the industry, uh, I think by your company Camtech, I believe it is. Martin, um, please introduce yourself. Thank you very much, Ian. Yes, I have a small company called Camtech Consulting, through which I offer various consulting services in biometrics and digital identity. But for some 30 years I've been involved in biometrics, first starting uh, with voice verification applied to mobile phones in the early days using voice verification via a SIM card. Uh, but subsequently I've got into uh, various aspects of both developing technology and business around biometrics in face recognition and iris recognition. Uh, but most recently I've been concentrating on consulting activities, uh, particularly in things like document authentication linked to biometrics in digital identity and the related uh, challenges of identity verification for, for, for checking that the correct person is using um, a claimed identity in a digital service. And that's involved helping the DCMS or now the DSIT uh, as a stakeholder in their digital trust framework development. Uh, and also, as you pointed out, Ian, uh, my work with the Biometric Institute on their digital identity experts group, uh, which has resulted in various uh, frameworks and good practice guidance that we issue to industry for our membership. Thank you, Martin. Um, and thank you all very much for, for that. So that's enough, I suppose, of the introductions to business. I'd like to try and sort of ease us into the conversation today by, I suppose, just asking you really in turn, uh, I mean, let's do it. But, you, you know, again, if you feel the need to start a conversation, please, you know, feel free to jump in. I know we're not in the same room, but let's try and accomplish that virtually if we can. So. I'd like to start, I, I suppose, by investigating your your own personal take, I suppose, on the current state of biometrics as an enabler of digital identity uh, in that market in the UK today. You know, how are businesses and organisations using it? What are the remaining challenges uh, uh, to uptake, for example, you know, for biometrics? And just a, a sort of overview, what's of interest to you today? Gus, could I possibly start with you? Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think really importantly for me, biometrics does two things in the identity space. It's an enabler of access, but also it's a protective layer, um, particularly against fraud. So if we look at 
protecting individuals online and giving them access to goods and services. Traditionally, that's been a data-led approach. As the markets evolved, we've started to use things like documents and then also rely on biometrics. What that does mean, and we have seen this across our customer base, is we get more good people access to goods and services quicker because they may be able to match against both data, documents, and have that biometric layer. And that means that they get a better experience. They don't have to go into branches and they can, they can operate online safely. Even more importantly, and this is where GBG works with a number of third parties as well, is to make sure that there's no fraud in that. Unfortunately, today we can't talk about identity without talking about fraud because the two come hand in hand in an online environment and whereby you might be able to get somebody's name, address, date of birth. It's more difficult to get hold of their face and it's also more difficult to get hold of their real life face um, and get past all of the great security technologies. So for us, what biometrics really does is mean that everybody can get better access to services, but also that we can protect them and protect the businesses that we work with. And often, I don't think consumers necessarily understand that. We're not putting faces in an onboarding journey to collect faces. We're not putting faces in just because it looks cool. Everything that is being done is to make sure that we're meeting AML regulations, meeting age regulations, protecting individuals from fraud. and if I look at uh, our ambition, it's to do that more across more countries because that's how you drive a global digital economy. And also actually to look at the rest of the, the biometric technologies that will continue to supplement face biometrics as well. Because one thing I've definitely learned over the past 10 years is one thing alone is never enough and fraudsters are very, very clever. So we need to make sure that we continue to protect individuals along the way. Thank you. Uh, and and uh, I'll, I'll pick up on, uh, I suppose, one point there, you know, public trust in, I suppose, in, tra in online, you know, if we're talking more generally rather than just biometrics, I think there is a particular strand of concern, you know, that we've seen expressed in public circles about biometrics in particular. But, you know, as you said, fraud is a fact of life and biometrics is potentially a really good tool, I suppose, from two perspectives. A, if implemented properly, can vastly improve the customer experience, whether it's onboarding, as a returning user, whatever. We all know that if we look at our phones or, you know, our laptops, you know, being able to go through that in a, a passwordless authentication. So there it is. I've said it out loud. Uh, context is a huge improvement on the three bits of password memorable information I need to log on to my bank online. So, but if that's true, then conversely, what's equally more important, it's more important, isn't it, is the security aspect. So I think maybe we can return to that under the challenges bit a bit later on. But thank you for that. And moving on, um, Campbell, can I ask your sort of take on where we are today, what, what the challenges are uh, and what you think we, we need to do next to improve uptake? I think it's a, it's an interesting, you know, I'm a relative newcomer compared to the the others esteemed um, guests you have on the on this uh, on this particular podcast. So my, my observations come as I am um, I'm sort of um, through the prism of that that's a newcomer status. But I think it's an interesting environment. Um, you have the deployment of biometrics quite successfully almost when people don't know it's there. You know, a very good, ex a couple of examples that, um, you know, that, that, that sort of I proved were involved in is the NHS app scheme, which had massive take up during the, 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 the height of the pandemic. The, the, the login and onboarding for that was um, underpinned by um, biometrics. No massive protests, no no marching in the streets, no complaints. In fact, lots of positive comments and you know about how effective, how effectively the the, the app worked in dealing with um, large onboarding large number of people in a very sensitive environment regarding very sensitive data, um, and did it pretty seamlessly. So it almost became it was just simply a non-issue, and I think that 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 was quite effective. I think also similarly the EU settled status scheme. If we use the word Brexit, and I'm sorry for using that, but if we use the word Brexit, the again the processing for a large number of of applications in a very short time period, certainly far shorter time period than would have been possible in a face-to-face -face context. So actually, you know, it, it made life an awful lot easier 
easier for both government and for those individuals that were seeking the, the settled status. Um, so again, it made, it made that community. And I think we're also seeing companies looking at test and learn um, not only the fraud aspects and security aspects, but the convenience aspects. I mean, we've been working with uh, with Eurostar on uh, sort of an ingress model, a, a sort of a, 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 um, a remote onboarding model for customers using the Eurostar services. And I think certainly the research that we've done with Eurostar suggests that consumers are far more comfortable with um, onboarding remotely when they realise that actually they will no longer have the two-hour queue at St Pancras to um, to to get to get through the um, the passport checks and um, and and the ticket controls. So again, it, it's I think we're also testing and learning to find out you know what consumers and users feel comfortable with, and actually to try and understand and capture um, evidence on what the benefits really are from the deployment of biometrics. So as a as a relative newcomer, I think it's a very exciting time. I think also from a regulatory point of view, I think it's quite interesting because I think government. And regulators are also playing test and learn with this too. We're all sort of learning together, and I think that that fosters quite an interesting sort of dynamic in the in, in, in the marketplace and the sorts of conversations we're having. But um, yeah, I think it's a, it feels to me very much we're in sort of test and learn phase. Uh, that's great, thank you, Campbell. I, I think there's, there's a couple of things I'll pick up on there. It, you know, the NHS app. You know, I was an early adopter of that. I went through the facial biometric. It wasn't all facial biometric, but I think they ended up with over 30 million, you know, registered users in a really short space of time. And I, uh, I suppose what occurred to me around that, talking about trust, was that there are a couple of, you know, really important lessons from that. There was an overwhelming public desire for the service. So, you know, whether it was doctor's appointments or access to your medical records or, or you know, um, somewhere you could easily, quickly and easily access your COVID certificate, that overwhelming public uh, or service need was there. But I think that was coupled with the fact that the NHS, and I hate calling it a brand, but that's exactly what it is. It's much more than that, of course. But, you, you know, if someone, if the NHS is associated with the service, there is a high degree of public trust, you know, in my view. And I think those two things together went to prove that, uh, and as you said, you know, the use of biometrics, there wasn't rioting in the streets, there weren't uh, stories in the press, you know, decrying this huge invasion of civil liberties and, you know, why are we giving this stuff away? And, uh, and we'll come back to, you know, some of the reasons why, you know, that narrative is out there and what we can do to counter it, but it was a huge success. And the other thing that I, that I was interested in that you mentioned was the move away from, you know, we're talking about biometrics largely in an online context. But of course, when you talk about travel and tourism, the consensual use of biometric data as an enabler to speed you through your journey is a tremendous opportunity. Uh, and that's a real world sort of advantage because let's face it, even though, you know, we're from the British Isles, none of us like to queue, I don't think. Moving on, Richard. Could you sort of give us uh, your take from the sophisteria? Well, I, I kind of echo what Campbell was saying about biometrics is is the, the advantage and the benefit for it. I mean, I, I've, I have an iPhone, which I love, and it's got face <clears throat> facial biometric recognition, so I don't have to put a pin code in. I've also got another phone, which is my work phone, uh, but I have to have to put a pin code into that, and that's really inconvenient. Now, you might have said 10 years ago, we'll put a pin code in was, was a the least you could do. I mean, it should be the easiest way in. But in fact, as these technologies get more usable and fluent for the user, the adoption goes up. But I, I, I still, going back to the example Campbell gave with the NHS, the, the real reason for the take of a biometrics was not because it was an, it was a, a, an easy, necessarily easy journey. It was because it allowed them to get a COVID passport, which will then allow them to do other things. So the trade that the citizens were making was, I'll give you my biometrics so I can get, get my pass. And that's the trade that they're making. And obviously in that trade, we, we the industry has to ensure that the biometric data capture and the biometric journey is trustworthy and satisfactory and wow. secure because it, you know the, the the citizen won't really understand every, all the nuts and bolts of what, what's involved in making that happen. So they're, they're, they're making a, on trust, they tick the terms and conditions, they don't, they don't read the 25 pages. It's all got to be safe and secure. And also to the point about the brand, this is equally important. NHS is a very trusted organisation in the in the uh, in the UK. So they're giving their their biometric data to a health organisation, 
kind of rings true and you hope that they, they uh, look after the data so I, I think that going back to the what the what you're offering the citizens and I, I often use this example it's about the citizens trade they'll give you this stuff if they get something in, in return I, I often give this metaphor when Google came along they turbocharged search because nobody was going to pay for search you weren't going to pay a cent or a tenth of a cent to search I mean if 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 if, if if we did that today, Google would be a million times bigger than it is already. So what's, what is the trade made? Well, the trade is that the citizen submits their topic and they coupled it to advertising. So the citizens trading their profile of what they're looking for in return for adverts. So so that and, and that's happy. People are happy with that. If people weren't happy with that, people wouldn't be doing searching. So we need to, for digital identity, we need, sorry, for, and, and biometrics in particular, make sure that that trade we're making with the citizen gives them the benefit they need. That makes sense. So it, absolutely, it does. Uh, and I think it, it seems that the common thread through the, the conversation so far, you know, trust is a huge issue, isn't it? And I suppose the question of how we address public trust in biometrics, and perhaps it's a little bit early to go into this, but we can talk about the common misconception, you know, hugely common misconception that, you know, what we're doing is capturing, uh, you know, the facial image you know, of somebody and somehow, you know, keeping that in a, a great bucket that, you know, a fraudster can go and attack. And obviously, it's much, much more than that. I won't steal your thunder because you're far more intelligent than I and know much more about how, you know, that, that data is both collected, processed and stored and managed, you know, as a mathematical representation um, so perhaps we can come on to that a, a, a bit more. But, but, but it, it's absolutely about trust. And I suppose, uh, Richard, you made the point, industry or the service being offered constitutes a fair trade for the end user. It's clear from the examples that you've just mentioned that that won't necessarily be a problem if the sufficient safeguards are in place to safeguard that data. Is that right? Is that fair? Yeah, that's that's right. Because when, when people are submitting their biometrics, their intention is to get through to the journey to do something. The biometrics is you know, it's the journey, part of the journey, but it's not the end. So they, they have an end which they want to achieve. If, if the end is, you know, exciting um, and, and very beneficial in a short period of time, they're not going to wait through the terms and conditions. So it, even though, you know, we can turn around and say in the court of law, well, you didn't read section three or whatever it was, we're not going to, we don't want to get to that stage, but we need to put, put, you know, have, a, have standards and safeguards. This is where trust marks come in that shows the user, even just visually that they, you know, that they're in a safe place with their data. Equally, you know, we need to make sure that when they see something that's fraudulently created, um, masquerading as, as an organization, that they can identify that as well. Yeah. So safe and secure secure data is kind of paramount. And I guess also it's, your, your, your point about trust is, is that it, trust is also has its own context. So for example, if I'm giving my biometrics to the NHS, you kind of think, as I said earlier, that kind of makes sense giving my bank to another government organization. I'm going to give my biometrics to a bank. Well, they're in business for profit. So are they going to profit out of my, my biometrics? And how does that play with their brand? I'm going to give my biometrics to an airline. The, 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 your perception of trust with that those three entities is slightly different because of what they do. So trust isn't a one thing. It, it's a context for a particular end that a citizen has. Thank you, Richard. Martin, your take on this, please. So I certainly agree with everything the panel's saying about trust issues and also the facilitation that biometrics can help in a journey or process to make uh, life much more convenient for certain things where it's really necessary to prove that you are the person who's claiming or entitled to this particular service. And uh, so that, that I think is 100% true. The issue of public trust in biometrics is a really interesting one. If I'm sort of talking from the Biometrics Institute's hymn sheet, then we produce guidance for how to protect that. We also uh, produce guidance that shows that you should develop your policy for what you want to do, what, what is your aim in any kind of system that might use biometric data. So the policy should come first, then the process by which you implement it, and only finally should you start selecting technology. If you go back many years, people had big debates over what technology was the best, and I'm very grateful that all of that has disappeared. But I think the types of technology that most people encounter in their daily lives and interactions are likely to be voice biometrics and facial recognition biometrics. I'd like to talk a little bit more about that in the context of what you're doing by giving biometric data to a particular organization. 
because I think that there's actually quite a lot of misconception about this. People will be familiar with using Face, for example, Face ID on Apple iPhones and other types of identity features using Face to unlock your phone. That similar feature is also used to essentially pass the fact that you have verified your phone to an external service when you're proving something. And in that particular case, no actual biometric data is leaving your device unless there's some kind of hack installed in your device, which you hope there isn't. In many cases, especially where you're just using your device as the interface, there isn't any biometric data actually leaving to go to some external organization to be checked. That is actually slightly different in a travel context because when you apply for your passport, you are effectively giving your face biometric data and in some countries your fingerprint biometric data. And that is stored in a secure area within the passport chip. And that is later recalled and verified against you as the live person when you're making a, a, a travel. So, for example, when you pass through an e-gate. And of course, voice biometric data, if you're talking to a bank on the telephone and they've got some kind of voice recognition feature installed, clearly they can intercept and store your voice biometrics. And I'm not saying that there's necessarily a trust issue because banks were ultimately the, the, the kind of arbit the, the traditional arbiters of trust. Uh, and I feel that they may have kind of lost that a little in, in recent years. But nevertheless, they are seen as guardians of trust in terms of our financial transactions. So I guess what I'm saying in maybe a bit of a roundabout way is that there are quite a number of different areas in which we might be using biometrics and also that there are things where we do not have to give our biometrics to an external system and that they are perfectly valid and provable uses, provided that you trust that device that you are using to interface to that biometric system. So that's an incredibly interesting point. So the demarcation line between actually sharing biometric data or any data set and the verification of, of held data or a particular use case, you know, the mobile phone is a you know really good case in point. That's a, a really interesting thing to, to to explore. But there are no hard and fast rules about which you know use case comes under which scenario. So, again, I think that's that that's a potential sort of challenge for us. And in terms of public trust, I think the there's so much to talk about that around that stuff but uh, uh, thank you all for your for your sort of take on that i think that's put us in a really good position to sort of move forward on to the, the the following questions so i think somebody martin perhaps mentioned you know the policy comes first now we're in the technology business you know like some of you i've been involved in mobile telephony since very early 90s and even before that i think there's been a huge change in terms of you know where we come from or where we are today. And the one thing that is obvious is that technology does not stand still. And I think it's fair to say that in most regards, it has far outstripped the support that the, the legislation and regular regulatory environments designed to support it, you know, and manage it, you know, and perhaps its potential for for harm now over the past few years that sort of rate uh, i would i would argue has potentially increased governments around the world have had a, a really difficult job in terms of understanding the outcomes of, of new technology as it's developing now all of you are involved in in digital identity and biometrics outside of the uk it would be nice to sort of get uh, uh, um, any viewpoints you have on existing regulatory environments, perhaps in the US or in the EU or uh, other territories around the world that you think um, perhaps might have some lessons for us in the UK. Uh, and I'll just make that open to anyone who wants to jump in. I think it's. I think it's. You, you talked. You talked about. You know, we're in the technology business, and so are governments and regulators. And I think one of the the issues I, I find interesting in this in this sector is we talk a great deal uh, um, at a very narrow level about biometrics, whereas actually I, I, I kind of think that we should take a step sort of backwards and outwards and start looking at the digital economy. And so start thinking about, right, okay, what are the key components of an, of an industrial policy to drive forward the digital economy and start the conversation at, at sort of that level. 
and then work your way back into what are the key components for driving take up use participation and engagement and indeed investment in that that the next wave or the next stage of that that's a digital economy and and when we talk when we look internationally you know we're seeing the eu has an industrial policy for the next iteration of the digital economy from their perspective they've got the ai act and then on top of the ai act they have the various cyber resilience and, and cyber security initiatives we've got EIDAS as well. So when we take it, when we look into identity, the EU's the EU's part of of that industrial sort of policy is is built on EIDAS, and uh, and we're seeing sort of investment from you know sort of pump priming from the European Union to to support pilot programs for 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 digital wallets. And I have to um, for for the sake of transparency, I have to say I um, I prove is uh, is a participant in one of those consortia that's in um, that's in discussions with the the EU around um, around funding for for a pilot scheme. But it's a clear industrial policy. The the US with within which um, the terms the the world's industrial industrial policy were something of an anathema and two words that you didn't really put together in a, in a political environment, certainly since the days of Ronald Reagan. We're now seeing the US waking up and taking very much an industrial policy approach to the future of its digital economy, particularly in relation to, to manufacturing. We saw the Chips and Science Act coming in. There's new funding being made available through Congress, and, and they are now quite explicitly taking an industrial policy approach. From a, a, a much narrower UK perspective, I'm struggling at the moment to see that sort of industrial policy here. I don't see it, and I think and I think it, we're, we're at risk of talking it, lots of components independently of that, that that's a digital economy without actually having an overall vision for how it all fits together and what the end objective, what the outcomes are. To your point earlier, Ian, about outcomes, what are the outcomes we're trying to achieve? You know, to some extent, biometrics and, and identity as an input, what are the outcomes? And I think that needs much more of that sort of strategic vision piece. And I, I would see that at the moment in the UK. So that's a, a very interesting point. So you met a couple of things there. So the EU, you know, had their first stab at EIDAS, what, in 2014, 15, something like that. They would be the first to agree, you know, it wasn't nearly as successful as they would have liked. Hence the, you know, the revamped EIDAS 2, you know, in which we're, we're sort of witnessing the, I suppose, the growth of that. They as you said, the EU appear to have a very clear, I believe with using the words industrial policy, it's uh, extremely out of fashion, you know, for, for quite a, a large number of years to even think about that. But it's very clear that that's what the EU has adopted. As you said, they are prepared to fund, you know, pilot schemes for digital wallet across all 27 member states. You know, that's a significant undertaking. The recent activity seen under the Biden administration in the US, $500 billion, you, you know, point, point towards a total revitalization, you know, of the US economy based on some of those principles. Very interesting. Uh, and I think those are perhaps, you know, lessons that, you know, UK government can, can look at. And I'm sure, you know, are seeing that. Martin, you've got a, a, a point to come in on, on that. Yes, I think that uh, Campbell raises a really good point about how do we drive the digital economy generally. And I think that's really important to UK as a, as a country. So the sort of observations I'd, I'd have about that are formerly the Department of Digital Culture, Media and Sport, of course, has been charged with developing the digital trust framework, uh, which obviously embodies digital identity and to some extent biometrics and their related attributes. There are a couple of pilots being run, currently one that looks at uh, the right to reside in the UK and the right to rent property and the right to employment in the UK. Uh, you could argue that those are relatively small scale things in comparison to what the EU is doing, but nevertheless, they're a step in the right direction. There are also various initiatives being run by an organisation called OIX, the Open Identity Exchange, which is, although international, uh, has a lot of support in the UK. So those initiatives, I think, are worth exploring. And over in the in the USA, the Real ID Act, I think, is something that we should concentrate on quite a lot. We'll certainly look at the parallels in there, because the UK has no default or de facto identity structure, unlike the EU, which has um, in most countries, some form of regulated electronic identity, 
which we certainly do not have in the UK. And of course, the US does not have that. They've seen the issue of fraud in the US with driver licenses, which you can buy online for a few cents. And that proves that you're over 18, apparently, or over 21. So all of these people buy fake identities as driving licenses uh, to get themselves into clubs or to buy alcohol. And those things have caused all sorts of problems in the USA. Real ID is starting to address that. And with the structure, the standardized introduction of mobile driver licenses, which have a digital identity aspect to them, that's seen as one of the ways of countering it. Yeah, that's uh, very interesting. Thanks, Martin. Gus, you got uh, something to say on this? I agree with everything that's just been said. However, that's all around using biometrics and how do we formalize that as part of identity verification. Anybody in an identity verification and fraud world, and regulators included, to have that and to enable it to do it safely, it needs biometrics. I don't think anybody should really contest that because there is enough evidence globally to state that you get a more secure onboarding and higher level of trust if you include biometrics in the journey. That though, doesn't really help the problem of consumer trust. So policy and regulation, yes, set out standards, set out guidelines, great. And there, in my view, is enough people in the world doing that. What there is not enough people in the world doing is educating customers on why that's important. A 18-year-old is more than happy to give their face on an app that makes you look 80 instead of 18 without any thought of consequence of what sharing that biometrics would do. Yet we're talking about 18-year-olds questioning why they should send that or share it at the point of digital onboarding. So what I don't see any government doing, what I don't see any regulator doing is actually educating individuals why sharing your biometrics at the point of onboarding or using it is a safer and better thing to do and how those companies are looking after the data safely. And by the way, you might not want to download an app off an app store and give mm. your biometrics away freely. For me, it's less of a policy thing. It's more about an education thing. And until we address that, we're not going to make the digital economy safer. That's, a, that's an extremely apposite point. Um, so I attended a cabinet office workshop for industry bodies the other day talking about data sharing across government departments for one login. And obviously, you know, one login have secured company, probably not too very far from us on this call, uh, to build a, a biometric front end on that. Um, it, it, it does appear, and we've had this conversation in that context in terms of you know public education and i think we have a range of views from members uh, about that you know whether or not there is an appetite from the public you know how you know to i suppose this takes us into the territory of self-sovereign identity doesn't it it's a, a fantastic you know in an ideal world it's a it's a potentially great solution but in terms of whether or not an individual will be willing to go through the processes, you know, associated with that, you know, is another question. With the UK Trust Framework, you know, one of the things we've been calling for is public education on the importance of digital identity. And but once you get into it, it's quite complicated. But, but the members are very clear that, you know, government are the people to communicate that message. I think probably what's What's a little more contentious and difficult to achieve is exactly what that message should be and to what level, you know, because we come from a technology perspective, don't we? And sometimes I'm confused with it. So, you know, we, we have to be careful to try and avoid that with the public. Does that make sense, Gus? It does. I would argue is the government, that, are the government the right people to share that message? Okay. That's, that's the piece because, I mean... All you need to do is read the news yesterday and the paper that was released, and there is very little trust there. I also think people need to move a little bit quicker because biometrics aren't new, yet we're still going around in the same circles on how we put policies around how we educate them. I'm fully confident that in 10 years' time, while I'm still in the identity and fraud, this will long be history and there'll be a new technology and we'll be having a debate exactly the same, but around a different topic. So really, I'm deliberately being flippant, but people need to get their act in order and just help move the situation along rather than debate around what policy has the best way to do it. Is this country doing it better than that country? And focus on the actual problem that's impacting individuals today and addressing that. 
yeah, I suppose waiting for that ideal moment to, you know, implement a, a full policy, we'll never get there. We're, we're there now, aren't we? I'll uh, I'll come to, I think Campbell was next with his hand up. Campbell? Um, yeah, no, thanks. I mean, I, I think the, the issue of the issue of consumer education, I, it, that's one I've I sort of wrestled with for a very, very long time. And um, I think one of the challenges I, I have here is I, I don't believe that consumers really want to be educated in lots of contexts and lots of circumstances. And I think that re relying on consumer education and, um, I, and, and sort of trying to sort of teach consumers what to do, how to behave, et cetera, it's a very difficult. It's a very difficult thing to deliver on. I'm I'm sort of struck, and I, I'm sort of struck with a, a piece of work that Ofcom did about ten years ago with Alan Good. Ofcom sponsored a bit of research from from Alan on security vulnerabilities in mobile phones, and that's about ten years ago. And I saw last year, and I've seen sort of so far, uh, you know, to, to our sales, a number of reports saying, "Gosh, aren't mobile phones?" very insecure. And as well, this is something that Ofcom was telling the UK public and telling manufacturers 10 years ago, we're still doing the same things. Consumers don't patch, consumers don't download um, the security patches, um, manufacturers don't fix the vulnerabilities that we know about. We still have the same problem. And yet the material was being put out there by Ofcom. And Ofcom has a very good track record of engaging with consumer groups on education and still didn't get the traction. And 10 years later, we're still talking about the same problem. I, I I tend to go with the fact that actually industry has to play a role here in an industry has to actually identify what the risks are to consumers, what are the where, where are the vulnerabilities and where we can, we should take those responsibilities, we should take the responsibility for, for those vulnerabilities away from consumers and not rely on them. There's, there's very good work by Professor Angela Sass, um, who's, who many of you might know. She is uh, an expert in computer, computer science um, and she does some very good work looking at the success rates of training, of security training within companies. And she basically is saying, look, a, a lot of security training within companies doesn't work. People still don't, despite after, despite the training, despite compliance and testing being a um, a compulsory, a mandatory part of the contract, they still don't do it. They still make the same mistakes again and again and again. And if that's an environment where we can control through contract compliance, and we're saying it doesn't work, what makes us confident that relying on consumer education is going to work? So I think there needs to be a grown-up conversation within industry as, as to actually what do we do to essentially take that burden of vulnerability away from the consumer and where can we fix things ourselves? Now that's not a that's not a uh, a silver bullet. It won't cure everything, but I do think we we need to start with the con we need to start the conversation with what can industry do to address the vulnerabilities that we see, and only then look at how we fill the gaps, whether it's government, regulators, others. Once we in industry have looked to see where, where you know where, what can we do. Maybe um, sorry, that's a, a bit of a a bit of a um, a bit of a a, a bugbear from from many years at Ofcom trying to put out public um, education guidance and and guidance notes with other regulators, and then just seeing the same behaviours and same mistakes happening again and again. Thank you for thank you for sharing your your previous your private hell of, of uh, a previous <laughs> position. Um, before I move to, to Martin on this point, something I, uh, I keep returning to, I can't help it. You, you know, uh, um, as I mentioned earlier, if I log on to my bank online, I don't keep the password and memorable information stored on any browser. You know, I input them myself. And yet, you know, uh, and this thing about the mobile phone is really interesting. And yet I use the finance app on my mobile phone. And because I'm really mean and quite miserly, you know, I have you know, iPhone 10 or whatever, uh, nine, hasn't got face recognition. I use my, you know, my, my thumb. Apple have somehow, well, we know how, have sort of, you know, the introduction of big tech between myself and my bank. You know, I'm using verification provided by Apple to log into my bank. That has potentially skewed, I suppose, customer preconceptions, you know, about biometrics and, you know, whether that's a positive thing or a negative thing, I think is yet to play out. But that's uh, uh, just just one of my views on, on this particular subject. Martin, you've got a comment here. It's a very quick one. I think uh, Richard also, I think, has something to say on this score. But I wanted to refer very quickly back to what Gus said about education. I think it is as simple as letting the public, informing the public about when are they giving biometrics away free 
and kind of unobserved almost, and they do not know that this is a biometric and that potentially it could be used for biometrics, or when are they giving explicit consent, which I think is the issue that Campbell really wanted to address. And I agree that we can't educate the public in terms of the ins and outs of technology, and it's up to industry to identify those vulnerabilities and as far as possible use their systems to protect against them. A very good point. Thank you, Martin. Richard? Yeah, and this this point about education, I think, is hugely important. And just to kind of kind of draw um, another parallel, we we all have contactless cards, and we pay contactless today. We have a virtual contactless card in our phones. That's kind of every day now. As I mentioned in the introduction, I worked in the smart card industry for a long time. The first contactless cards came out in I think 2008. I think Mastercard might have uh, had one before then. So. And I've, I've had, I had a physical contactless card in my wallet for a long time, and I never was able to use it anywhere, but it was there. So this education thing is, is that, well, why have I got this thing? How do I use this thing? And then, and then eventually, you know, the pandemic came along, no cash, no contact, fantastic technology, whoosh, off, off it went. It probably was on, on, its, on, its, on a trajectory before then. But well, this is 2020, so it's 15 years, 14, 15 years, it will take for it to get mass adoption. And, and this is this is this is what this is the journey that a digital identity, or, or in fact, what it's going to be, I, I believe, is it's going to be a digital wallet with a digital identity in it that may have bare biometrics in there as an attribute that could be shared, along with a whole host of other attribute information and inf information around services that an individual can use. I mean, a wallet just doesn't have to have cash. So my, my point about education is is that the population will adopt these if the benefits are there when if you've also taken another, another parallel when they started putting phone um, cameras on phones i mean that was a, effectively a way of sending a, a digital postcard but who would you know we now have youtube and you put this technology in the hands of people and they use it in all sorts of ways we'd never would have imagined at the time when they put first put a camera in a camera in a, in a mobile phone Yes, uh, I've, got, I've got a nasty feeling that we could probably continue for another hour on this point alone. Um, <laughs> it's incredibly interesting. And I think the whole issue of, of public trust, I think, is key to, uh, and again, going back to Campbell's point about, um, so I had this saying, I think, when I came back to digital identity a couple of years ago, that, you know, digital identity is the, I can't remember the word now, but it's essentially the cornerstone, in my view, of a thriving digital economy because the or a, you know a thriving digital economy this is it is is firmly predicated upon the the uh, availability of an efficient and secure digital identity system and that means you know from a, a, a you know a company being able to recognize who i am to a very very high level of assurance and vice versa, so that I know who I'm dealing with from a, a, a business perspective. So, um, yes, perhaps there's uh, another podcast on the whole issue of trust that's sort of dragging you back to, uh, I suppose, the UK and, you know, what's happening here today. And I know some of you have strong views on this. In terms of our existing regulation in the UK, you know, we are talking about biometrics, but let's widen it out to digital identity if, if required. <laughs> What does good regulation in the UK look like? Is that a, is that something that keeps any of you awake at night? Uh, I doubt if it is, but you know, it's the ecosystem, the regulatory environment in which industry does business, you know, and develops products and services, you know, for end users, is it can be largely determined by the regulatory and legislative environment. Does it work now? Do we need to do something else? What what does good regulation look like in the UK? And again, please just uh, jump in. Does it work now? It's not broken. Uh, could it be better? Yes. I would love regulators to understand onboarding journeys and users better in digital identity rather than looking at what they think is important, because I think often regulations focus on either historical things that have been deemed important at a point in time or things that have either probably been escalated in the media or in one particular case. So if I sit and look at onboarding journeys and the best way to get good people through the front door and to stop bad people, often regulations, whether they be privacy, money laundering regulations, they don't support that in the best possible way and they're not flexible enough. So my only encouragement would be is that regulators get closer to the detail and make changes based on that and make changes quicker. 
uh, and I think you, you and I had quite a discussion on this when we spoke last, Gus. So the treatment of biometric data by, for example, the Information Commissioner's Office as special category data is biometric data. And I think this is perhaps where we can explore a little bit about, you know, what the collection, processing and management of biometric data, let's stick with facial, I suppose, for now. Is that any different to any other data attribute, you know, uh, under the terms of the UK Trust framework, uh, as it's defined there, is biometric data any different to other data sets? And if so, why? Taking away the collection and kind of keeping of it, if you look at it sensibly, we all walk down the streets with our faces, not with balaclavas, yet we don't walk down the streets with our name, address, bank account, sort codes on our T-shirts. So... If you look at the real world of what we protect, we don't actually protect our faces on a day-to-day -day basis. We don't protect them when we slap them all over social media, when we do send them on post, any of that. We do protect the information that actually bad people can steal and do bad things with to impact you. Now the world will evolve and I'm sure fraudsters will start to use faces differently, but how they're actually managed by tech companies should be no different. So if you collect massive repositories and you do, um, and there's been bad cases of people using biometric data in ways that I don't condone at all. But that is the minority. If you look at the majority of companies who are using faces to onboard and look after them safely, they don't do so in a way that should be protected any differently to a name, address, a bank account, in my view. And I think often, let's go back to the real world, faces establish trust. So let's use them as another thing that helps establish trust and make it easy to do so in a realistic way. Okay, so the, so the decoupling, uh, that's quite important, of the storage and management, you know, of any data set, I think is, is again, that's another podcast, webinar, and event probably. But, but I think focusing on the, uh, I, I think you're quite right, the facial biometrics seem to be a very emotive issue. You know, I can remember before, way before COVID, 2015, 16, 17, you know, working in Europe and even Eastern European countries where, you know, there, there was quite a lot of debate. Germany, I seem to remember, you know, had, you know, quite a few concerns around this. They don't seem to be manifesting in the same way, whether or not we've been a little bit busy with global pandemics, you know, to worry about that and it's going to come back. I, I don't know. I think we have to try and, as an industry, try and take control of that narrative as best we can, or at least to counter some of the stuff, as you point out, you know, media commentators sometimes, you know, have not been very helpful in conflating, you know, different ideals with with what actually biometric data is. Martin, you've got a point on, on this. Uh, yes, I just got like to go back to something that Gus said. I think it's very important that we separate out these use cases where biometric data is being collected and stored by some external organisation versus what I was saying earlier, where the biometric proof is carried out on the device and no biometric data itself leaves it. And I think it's very important that we establish that the person conducting that transaction is live. And in a way, that's kind of giving their consent at the point of processing to having this transaction carried out by the use of biometric data, but without the biometric data going to any kind of external source. So we're back to this thing about the, the, I suppose, the difference between the sharing of biometric data and the verification of that. And I think, you know, we're obviously aware of existing regulation and legislation around, you know, the principles of data minimization. Are those sufficient? It, it, can you separate when verification should be used over and above actual sharing of, uh, of, uh, of data? That's a, a quite an interesting point. Richard, you've got something to say here. Yeah, um, Martin's point is absolutely right about how, you know how biometric data is managed and moved around. Is it in the device? Is it is it uh, you know, centrally stored? I mean, all, all this is you know legitimate way of ha handling the data, but I think the perception of the citizen is that taking my selfie to log onto this service, and whether we like it or not, the perception is they have the data. Okay, there may be terms and conditions that says we don't do this, and it's like bed. You know, bedded down in, in in sub clauses but the perception of the usage that i gave my they, i took my photograph and i sent it um okay we we, we may process the biometrics on the phone and abstract the actual data and tokenize it most citizens won't understand that whilst we're happy about that they're happy about it and they perceive they've given their data across to a brand or an entity that they 
have a notion of trust in. Yeah, I'll just interject and say, should we try to change that perception or is that a question of education? I think, yes, we should try and change that perception. And it is actually a matter of education, <laughs> so both because, you know, again, how hard and difficult is it and to what level of interest and attention are you going to get from an individual who just wants to get through a journey because they want to you know, prove their age or get into a club or buy alcohols or whatever? It could be seen by by a lot of sort of people who are consuming this technology as the minutiae of well, but I'm still given my biometrics. It doesn't matter whether it's on my phone or whether it's and that's the perception that the citizen will will will, will take away as to what's happened. Any other comments on that? I'm, uh, I suppose I've got one. In that you know the advertising industry has made a lot of money by boiling down relatively complex ideas or or concepts and making it very simple for the general public to understand. That's not, you know, not being patronizing in that way, but as we point out, you know, end users are, they're busy, right? They're doing all sorts of stuff. And so how do we communicate, how we or government communicate effectively about the benefits and safeguards inherent in biometrics and the wider digital identity space, I think is gonna be really key. So I imagine there are lots of advertising people out there, you know, with government accounts rubbing their hands together as we speak, generating storyboards at a furious pace. Richard, you've got something else on this? Yes, just a, a sort of thought that you prompted. The, the, the whole biometrics elements of digital transformation programs where you may be onboarding, there's a whole sphere of digital ethics which applies to this, to what where you're going through the digital identity, how you're doing, what you're doing with the data. And again, come back to my previous point about how, how is that imparted to uh, to to a citizen in a well a digestible format that they understand what's going on. And and that's that's also, I mean, in in, in some of our digital digital identity programs, that the whole ethics approach is part of something that we we can bring. But it's it's a it's a wider wider topic of uh, not just trans digital transformation, it's all about how you're handling data and, and how, what people know about what you're doing with the data and how you, you manage that, that scenario ethically. And that indeed, uh, I mean, I, I will, a bit of a plug for Tech UK here, you know, I've been here for about a year and a half. A lot of the work that they do is obviously around policy and, you know, and obviously we work very closely with our industry members, but the, you know, the issues around diversity, inclusion, digital ethics, I think we held a digital ethics week over Christmas. All of this stuff is inherent in all of the technology that we're talking about. So looking at the time, I'd probably like to move on, I suppose, for a, a bit of a roundup into our, our last question, which Again, it's it's quite general. We are, I think, as Ca uh, Campbell pointed out earlier, we're in an incredibly interesting time. You know, it's uh, there's a huge amount happening. There have been, uh, you know, worldwide events that have, uh, I would say, accelerated the the digital industry somewhat. Uh, and attached to that, you know, I suppose some of the concerns and issues around that, we have to address them. We have to do relatively quickly, I think, as, uh, particularly as Gus has pointed out, you know, we need to do better and we need to do it faster. It, you know, I think that's that's coming across very clearly. But so if I go in reverse order to how we started, uh, just to be equitable, I'd like to ask uh, our panel guests what they would like to see happen next in the sector. So hopefully you've got some words of wisdom for, for, for us and, and for our listeners on this. Uh, and Martin, I'll start with you. Okay, thanks. So in terms of digital identity and biometrics within digital identity, I think we've already addressed some of the challenges, particularly what do we say to people in terms of educating about the usage? How do we draw up a policy that will really drive uh, the use of the adoption of digital identity as a facilitation process within UK business? And finally, possibly as some other panellists have alluded to is, how do you make sure that the regulation is appropriate? I think we have a lot of appropriate regulation. It's a question of how you apply it. Uh, so I wouldn't necessarily say that we need more regulation, but we should be looking at how you apply that regulation. Yeah, that's a very important point. Thank you, Martin. Richard, over to you. I think from my perspective, uh, as I've kind of gone on about the citizen and what what, would, what digital identity and biometrics bring to the citizen and to make sure that the, the sector tells people in, in terms that they understand what this can do for them. And, and as, as Gus uh, uh, articulated about you know, protecting people, barring bad people, 
this this is all part of that message. So, so I'd like to see the sector communicate digital the benefits of digital identity in a way in which can be digested by the chap if I look out my window who's walking along the street. If we said if you said to him, "Oh, do you want a digital identity?" He'd say, "Digital what?" It's a, it's almost a failure of the industry to use jargon and expect the people who are not in the industry to to adopt it. We, we have a communication problem, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, and I'd like to make that make, make communicate it better. And then, then I think we'll we'll we'll, we'll see things pick up and, and and be adopted. Yeah, that's an interesting point. We like to think we know what Joe Public, use an antiquated phrase, you know, thinks. Do we? I think probably we need to understand. I suppose what is important to the to the end user. That's a, mm. a really good point. Thanks for yeah. that, Campbell. Moving on to you, what would you like to see next? Contrary to what you said earlier, Ian, I I actually I do lose sleep over regulation. Um, and I have lost a lot of sleep over a lot of years about regulation. So I, I, I would like, if, if, if I can, I would, I would like to just take a couple of seconds to, to talk about actually what I'd like to see from regulation. As I'd, I'd like to see a clearer regulatory strategy. What's the vision for a regulatory environment? So, and I'm, when I'm talking about regulation, I'm also looking at regulation for the market. So, what is what is how does competition policy play a role in ensuring, for example, that there is fair, reasonable, non-discriminatory access to um, hardware, to operating systems, and to key, uh, you know, to key um, sort of device attributes such as a camera on your phone? How how is how is the Competition and Markets Authority going to apply the powers that it has to ensure that that these markets continue to be open for? You know, for innovative, non-vertically integrated big tech companies. So, what, how, what, what's the role of competition policy in this space? I'd like to see government play a leadership role on the adoption of standards, particularly sort of open global standards. You know, W3C, verifiable credentials. So let's see, let's see the government play that play that role. And then I think when we look at the the, the regulation of the services themselves, I think there needs to be a, a, a discussion here. But you have to focus on the, the end user. You have to focus on on the 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 the, the needs of the end user when you're designing a, a regulatory solution. And that's, for example, uh, making sure that it it's not dependent upon you know inclusion isn't dependent upon or sort of you know, usage isn't dependent upon the the, the the requirement to have a particular device or a particular sort of hardware or sensor. We have reasonable mobile phones, and a lot of people don't. So why would we why would we insist that in order for them to participate and engage, they have to have the latest iPhone? I don't think that's right. So I think we should we need to make sure that the that, that people have the, the, the regulations and, uh, and and solutions are not built around the, the the most sophisticated hardware. I think we need to look at accessibility in terms of how do we ensure that people, the most vulnerable, the most marginalised in society, can you know can access these services. So again, what is the role of policy? What is the role of providers of solutions? How do we deliver that? And then again, to, to reiterate my, 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 the point I raised earlier is I think we have to make sure that we're relieving as much as possible the burden of responsibility from users. So again, it's just about what is it that industry can do to to to, to protect users. Uh, and again, that that should be built into the, the sort of the either into the trust frameworks or into the the, the regulatory requirements requirements on 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 solution providers. Thank you, Campbell. Um, lots to to sort of unpack around that. I suppose it's worth pointing out that the recent government changes with the movement of digital identity from this DCMS formally and now into the Department of Science, Innovation and Technology is an interesting move, you know, where we've heard some very positive noises from people involved at a very senior level at our working group last week on that. So we live in hope. But but again, it's about effectively communicating to government, I think, what, what industry is advocating and doing so in a co-creator, co-creation type context, uh, which I, I think we're, we're hopefully getting towards. And finally, Gus, what would you like to see next happen in this sector? Other than stop regulating probably what identity should look like in the forms of a box, because I don't think that we do that particularly well, and I don't think that's going to change. I would love to see trust stamps that are more visible to end users that tech companies achieve by doing things in a safe way. But other than that, I'd just really like us to stop going for nirvana of what people think is the most perfect thing and be a little bit more realistic to what actually makes uh, an impact for a consumer. And I think that that's really important when people get together in rooms and talk about how we can make this absolutely perfect, that there is always a common sense of 
come back to the root problem. What are we trying to solve? And let's solve that rather than boiling the ocean. I think that's a really incredibly interesting point. We've all been involved in identity now for a number of years, and I certainly have sat in rooms where conversations have gone around and the level of complexity, you know, somebody walking in off the street would not have a clue what we were talking about. And I think that idea of pragmatism over some sort of idealist, you know, view of, of where we should be in identity, it's an evolutionary process, isn't it? We're not going to get it. I don't think there is 100% right, just as there's probably not 100% accuracy or, you know, level of assurance. But what we have got with biometrics, you know, if you look at the, uh, I suppose, the latest NIST testing, you know, we have biometric services using algorithms, using technology to a very, very high degree of accuracy now. We're not where we were even three, four, five years ago. So I think that's worth uh, pointing out. But I suppose it just remains for me to thank each of you for sharing really interesting stuff. I could have gone on probably for another hour, but I imagine that your colleagues would get very upset with you if I kept you for that long. Thank you for, for all of your insights. Uh, uh, we're going to return to this and I think perhaps get the opportunity to dive into do a bit more deep dive on some of the stuff we've talking about, uh, we've spoken about today. But it just remains for me to thank all of you, Gus Tomlinson, Campbell Cowie, uh, Richard Thompson and Martin George for joining us today and sharing your insights and experience. If you're new to Tech UK, this is what we do. We talk about technology, um, but we do a hell of a lot more than that. Come and join our working group. We get involved in some of the real activities that we do. If you're interested in influencing policy at government level, that's what we do also. So please feel free to reach out to me or any of my colleagues via the website or ian.mccallum at techuk.org. Thank you very much in, indeed for, for joining us today. Thanks very much to my guests. Uh, I hope we get to speak to you again very soon. Mm -hmm.